It's August 26, 2022, and you're listening to San Jose Rocks. I'm Dan Orloff. Earlier today, my colleague Mark Purdy and I interviewed John Densmore, drummer of The Doors. We covered a range of subjects from Janis Joplin to why The Doors didn't play Woodstock or the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, insights into John's roots in drumming and some of the jazz greats that inspired him, We're going to talk about his newest book, The Seekers, and his insights into what was the difference between the bands that came out of Northern California and Southern California. So let's begin. Well, John, um, good to see you again. Uh, We had the privilege, or I had the privilege, of connecting with you when you were up here in San Jose in 2008 for the San Jose Jazz Festival uh, and your band Tribal Jazz. Uh, Great performance on Saturday of that weekend and and in that interview that we did with Judd Cost uh, we got some background when you first met Janis Joplin and uh, when she was up in San Francisco when you guys were performing at the Fillmore some background on your performance at the Northern California Folk Rock Festival in 68 and your roots in jazz but today you know Mark and I want to go a little deeper on some of the rock experiences and um, then learn about what you're up to uh, today. Does that sound good? Sounds good, Dan. Well, Mark, let's dive in. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, so uh, I uh, I am Dan's uh, uh, man in terms of uh, trying to pin down a lot of stuff for our San Jose Rocks website, which if uh, thank you for reading the notes we sent you. Uh, which no, but, it wants to archive and document. I can't, I can't answer half of them. I'll try. Well, I was <laughs> going to say, I was going to say, probably your answer to most of these questions will be, I don't remember, <laughs> but I wanted to run them by you anyway, because uh, one benefit or curse of playing in an iconic rock band is that you have a lot of fans who remember the smallest details that may or may not be true. Well, and that's, uh, that's, so that's the thing. Uh, um, uh, stuff uh, Rolling Stone not only gathers moss, it gathers BS. Right. Like, so then we, like that. Uh, want to take. <laughs> I took. Uh, somebody's drum, snare drum and they took Jim's jacket. What the? Yeah, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> but <Not> uh, true. <laughs> okay, good. Go we'll, get to, we'll get to that. Well, this is a rare opportunity to talk to a source that knows the real <laughs> shit. So, uh, so I'm going to run down these questions real quick because we know we have limited time with you. And I'm, I'm figuring shit. most of these answers will be, I don't remember. You mean I can swear real shit? You yeah, just... yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so, um, uh, okay, so you're, you, the door is two appearances in Santa Clara County. From the way I've tried to do the research and tried to do it accurately, it, we're we're in 1967, 1968, 67. The Doors played the Continental Ballroom, which was a, a converted roller rink in Santa Clara in November of 1967 it held only 1500 people and uh there's a there's an audio audience tape of that show which is interesting to listen to not very good quality um but i guess my my let's cover that real quick first if we could you you remember that at all do you remember that gig at all <laughs> vaguely you know at okay the, at <laughs> well, the time it, well we had these managers that were just running us ragged and so they booked us 
everywhere and anywhere and right okay well this so 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 it's a, a 1500 seat ballroom the interesting thing to me is like at that time you guys were already a big band this is the end of end of 1967 and you're playing like bigger places and all of a sudden you're playing this converted roller rink in santa clara it just seems so unusual to me when i look at that list um so and and apparently it was packed in there were a number of warm-up bands um but if you don't remember it you don't remember it i i get it um but that was that so that was it sounds like that was maybe kind of typical of the way your manager was booking you like all over the place would that be correct that that you were playing these different places that even though you were a big band at that time um a few a few yeah small what was what was the what was the weirdest place you ended up playing small place you remember well is the earl warren showground qualify as a weird sure yep. yeah because I, I mean i'll i'll, I'll because um that's for horses not music you know yeah and so uh, uh when we were doing the sound check I went to the center of the, you know, it's a circular room for horses to be paraded around. And I clapped my hands and there was so much reverberation. It was more than I'd ever heard in any recording studio, um, you know, echo chamber. So that was really frustrating. Yeah, but, I bet. Well, I can imagine the acoustics in this roller rink were just fabulous. Yeah, but, right. Uh, but, 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 but the, maybe we yeah. wanted to skate. I don't know. It was the Grateful Dead. And the doors at the Earl Warren Showground, um, and uh, the managers were booking us at uh, you know like that day we had two gigs in one day, one afternoon in Oxnard somewhere, and then Santa Barbara, and uh, wow. <laughs> we we asked the dead ahead of time if we could use their equipment because they're going to be rushing in late. And uh, we we don't have time to what you know. And they said cool. And then when we got there, they said no. Uh oh, I guess it's that rivalry you're talking about uh, between the uh, Bay Area and the Southern California. So that was difficult because we had to sort of set up our equipment in front of everybody and then play. Let's go to that 1960. Well, 1968 gig at the at the Santa Clara County Fairgrounds, infamous up here anyway, Northern California Rock Festival. You guys were the headliners on Sunday. Um, do you have any idea why why you decided to do that gig, or was just the manager set you up? Well, I don't. It's a good festival gig. What do I know? Uh, okay. Is that the one with the Hell's Angels as security? Correct. Yeah. It was a good gig, um, although they, you know, if you offered them a six pack of beer, then they would let you on stage. So the security wasn't too good. Um, but there were some great photographs that Jim Marshall took of us at that. And yes. uh, I remember we were just kind of getting our our uh, stage presence for larger arenas. And uh, mm. it was a good one. Okay. Do you remember how you, how you got up here, where you stayed? Did you fly up the day of the show? Do you remember any of that? No, oh, we probably drove up, stayed in the motel. I, yeah. Okay. Do you do you uh, so you guys were supposed to go on at four thirty? There's a festival, so things get you know festivaled, 
and you end up going on at six o'clock um and uh you play for you know a pretty good set from what all accounts uh but uh i had read a quote from jim morrison where he said daylight shows were not his favorite that he preferred night shows you know with the dark and the spotlight was it the same for you and how, do you have any memory of how you played that day and how you felt about playing those daylight shows i thought we played good um jim is correct uh nighttime uh, adds a bit of mystery to uh the uh vibe and also uh you know that uh, is another question you had why why were we at the not at the uh, Monterey Pop Festival? We were in New York playing in a little club. Well, another little thing that the managers had booked, even though we were big, and we wanted to be at the Monterey Pop Festival, but we're not. And another thing about indoor versus outdoor, Jim did not like also outdoor gigs for the same reason, the ambience is strange and the acoustics, you can't contain the sound in a building and sometimes it's not good. And so we um, passed on Woodstock. Jim did not want to play Woodstock because of that. That was a mistake. But I was on stage at Woodstock watching everybody. That was fun. You play a lot of gigs and after a while, you don't remember which city you're in. Totally uh, understand. And uh, on our live album, we left in this thing where Jim says, this is uh, absolutely live. He says, really great to be here in Chicago, uh, in Minneapolis, right. uh, in the in New Orleans, in, in yeah. Seattle. He starts naming all the, which is sort of not nice, but the right. point being, you know, you go on tour, and after a while, right? You, you you don't you don't know where you are. You don't you don't know where you went after that show by any chance, do you? You you, you played a gig in San Diego the next night, according to the record. Uh, you don't. You spent the night here in San Jose, do you? Uh, we were, are you talking about Santa Clara now? Yeah, this, the 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 folk rock festival. Yeah, after the after that show's over. Um, it's the record shows that the next night you're playing in San Diego, but I, Oh, wow. Uh, okay. I, you don't remember. I think, spent the had, night in San I think we had cars and vans and drove. Yeah. It look, there's a film of it. Well, that's it. There's a film of this. I, I guess for a project you guys were doing and it shows you guys kind of riding up in a big Cadillac onto the grounds and then Jim's walking around and then oh, it shows no, Harrison uh, Ford Harrison Harrison Ford is show, is, is showing is filming Harrison Ford uh was on the crew when we did the Hollywood Bowl maybe Santa Clara but the the uh shot you're talking about the limo and going on the grounds that's the Toronto Peace Festival oh okay thank you for clarifying that yeah, yeah you might have been asked, how did Harrison Ford come to work for you guys? Well, Ray and Jim went to uh, UCLA Film School, and Harrison was in the acting division. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes the, the filmmakers would uh, need actors. 
So they knew him. He was a carpenter at the time, a very, very good one. And so he was a great grip to help, uh, you know, set up and whatever. Do you have an anecdote of where somebody tried to mess with your band before you went up or you messed with some other band? All in good fun, of course. Uh, just the uh, Grateful Dead um, incident, you know, to, which was rather strange because the dead are uh, San Francisco and uh, Peace and Love. And uh, and there was some rivalry between, I, you know, uh, ah, I, to generalize that the L.A. bands were slicker, well, maybe it's true. And they're more organic in the Bay Area. But um, we all respected and loved each other's playing and music. It's just very different. When we played San Francisco, um, everyone was kind of staring at us like we were from Mars. And they were kind of quiet. I mean, they would dance to Light My Fire, but then we'd play the end. <laughs> and they would be kind of bludgeoned into silence right, and right. take it home and chew on it rather than dissipate it in, in applause. And so, um, you know, uh, we were a little different from, you know, even L.A., uh, the birds, um, you know, we were sort of the dark underbelly of the undeclared Vietnam War. You know? Okay, well, it's funny you bring up the birds because – I, I don't know. <laughs> I, David Crosby keeps dissing you on his Twitter account, not you, but the band. And I, I don't get that. I don't understand that. I don't. Do you have any idea of why he does that? Maybe there's some jealousy about Jim's talent or whatever. But uh, mm -hmm. I guess the the main answer would be just a statement that um, it's pretty interesting that Neil Young and Graham Nash and Stephen Stills, all three of them won't speak to David at all. So that might um, <clears throat> mirror uh, his abrasive personality, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know? Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's let's expand. If you wouldn't mind expanding on that whole Bay Area, L.A. thing, um, you know, do you think do you think that my, my shorthand for it is your observation about the audiences in the Northern California versus Southern California is really kind of fits into this. My I grew up in the Midwest, so I was looking at this from the outside. But the the word to get back to us was, well, the San Francisco bands all, uh, when they're on stage, they all kind of turn and play themselves while the LA bands actually play to the audience. <laughs> and um, I don't know if that was part of this whole dynamic. Do you, you know, do the do the makeups of the two areas, the two cities or two regions uh, create some sort of musical uh, thing that, that is reflected by, by all that? You know, we, we, we went to the Bay Area. We loved the whole scene up there. You know, we felt a part of it. Um, we loved the airplane and the Country Joe and whoever else. We played the Avalon, the Fillmore. Um, it was a great scene. 
maybe uh, LA bands were a little slicker or whatever. Um, mainly the, the uh, you know, the, the hippies, it, it felt kindred to be around other hippies because uh, the middle of the country hadn't caught up yet. So uh, when we were starving, uh, Ray Manzarek and I and his girlfriend Dorothy drove across the country because uh, we were playing a club in New York and we got a car for free as long as we paid for the gas that needed to be delivered to the West Coast. And uh, we stopped in a, a diner in Ohio and you know Ray and I had long hair and Dorothy's Japanese. You know, they 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 the the guys with the red neck at the at the red paint on the back of their necks were asking the waitress for a scissors. They were going <laughs> to cut our hair on the spot. So uh, all this to say, we felt camaraderie with the, you know, uh, Haight Ashbury felt like the Sunset Strip or the Lower East Side in New York. Um, so, I don't know. Uh, there was, there's always been a rivalry between the Bay Area and Southern California, a little bit, just like New York and LA. You know, I don't know. It's, it's healthy. You're, in, in my layman's view, your, your drumming style was a lot more sophisticated than a lot of the kind of straight ahead rock drummers of that era. Do you think that was affected by you growing up in L.A. and, and, be, and being exposed to these different... Well, there, there, was, there was the jazz workshop in uh, North Beach who had the same great jazz acts as uh, the Shelley's Manhole down here in L.A. Um, but, uh, yeah, I became obsessed with jazz, so it did give me... Uh, help my technique. Um uh, the bands are straight ahead up there, but good. Spencer Dryden was fine. Um, you know, uh, I was kind of jealous of, uh, can't think of his name, who was playing with Love at the Whiskey, and we were in a bar down the block, and I was thinking, man, I'm better than that drummer. Why am I not in love? <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Then, you know, Arthur Lee graciously uh, got the president of Electra to come see us. And, and then we skyrocketed past love. Sorry, Arthur. But, mm -hmm. you know, this very talented guy, but he wouldn't travel. So that wasn't helpful. OK, so here's my one drum geek question, and I apologize for it, John. But, you know, like Dan, I was a garage rock drummer. Uh, and, I'll apologize. You know, when, no worries. Yeah, but man, uh, well, well, it was fun. You're right. But okay, so when "Light My Fire" comes out, we're all listening to it, and you go in, in the instrumental break, and wow, this is great. And then you know, at the end of your instrumental break, you get back into the song with the series of triplets. You know, bump, 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 oh, yeah. bump, bump. And yeah. I'm I'm sitting there going like, the drummer came up with that. That was the drummer came up with that. And of course, the organ player in my band said, no, no, the organist came up with that. And then the <laughs> guitar player said, no, 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 no that, the guitar that, player. Settle that. That was me. They're not really triplets. It's it's three against three. 
don't, don't, do, don't, don't. That's the bass line of uh, Light My Fire. Do one, two, three, four, don't, right. don't. Against that, you see, that's three against four. I love that uh, cross rhythm because that's the uh, main uh, rhythm, three against four, used in um, Haitian possession drumming <laughs> to get to get the dancers out, you know? So it, it does something to the brain cells. To, it, it just kind of, it's two rhythms against each other and it kind of loosens you up or something. And so right. I, I found myself uh, doing that and then Ray followed and, and, and off we went. And then I would kick it back into four, you know, don't. It was yeah. up to me to uh, take it in and out. All this stuff evolved over playing in clubs, and we didn't talk about it. It just happened. I don't know why I did this crap, da, 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 but, yeah, yeah. It, you know, I thought, well, Ray's doing a really complicated Bach-like intro, so it needs a an exclamation point at the front. <laughs> so, I mean, I didn't think of this. It just naturally evolved. Well, just know yeah. this, John, for us amateur garage band drummers, and we covered that song when it was a hit ah. uh, in my band up here in Daly City, is it was very hard to cover you guys. <laughs> just let me just say that. So, so thanks yeah. for that. You just count it off, right? One, two, one, uh, uh, crap. <laughs> da, 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 da. Well, that was the easy part. No, we're talking, and then Love Me Two Time, um, which is one of my favorite I don't even try to emulate your no, that's, style. That's, I really appreciate you bringing that up, Dan, because Love Me Two Times is a shuffle. Do, 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 right. do, 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 do. Regular old shuffle. Yeah. It's just da 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 And so normally it would be the um, two and four snare, bass drum on one and three. Do, 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 do. And I don't know why, but I just decided to play sort of the melody da 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 all across the kit all across the snare and tom toms um turned out pretty good i guess yeah yeah well yeah well, well you ideas. know just to step back to when we met in 2008 if you may recall we had dinner and beer at a Friday night uh, San Jose jazz jam. And uh, you and I were sitting with some friends and uh, my friends were playing uh, here at Gordon Beers in San Jose. And one of them said, hey, Dan, why don't you go up and play Love Me Two Time for John? <laughs> and I looked at this guy with like, are you out of your mind? And you kind of gave me a look which went like, thank you. <laughs> oh. No, I mean, you weren't mean at all. And it was never, ever going to happen. But I think you were kind of relieved because it, it would have been hard on me. <laughs> oh, my. You know, it's a compliment when anybody plays your stuff. You know, Willie Nelson's kid, Micah, he played, uh, there was a tribute to us in Seattle uh, a few years ago. Carlos Santana played and a bunch. It was, this is a private fundraiser for, 
Who was Bill Gates' partner? He passed. Uh, Paul. Yeah. Um, Paul Allen. Allen. Paul Allen. Yeah. He did that Hendrix Museum up there. Um, and so my, <laughs> I played some things, but I was too tired to play uh, L.A. Woman. And Micah, who, as his dad said, can play any instrument. He did it. I'll do it. And he went up and played L.A. Woman pretty good. You know, took a lot of nerve, but you know, it's uh, yeah, it's such a compliment for people to do that. Well, you know, your music, uh, I mean, one of our signature songs besides Love Me Two Time was Soul Kitchen. Oh, and, uh, and we opened up Soul, we opened up the Palo Alto Art and Wine Festival on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. And coming into our second set, as we launched, you know, it's got that boom, 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 right at the beginning. Right. And this hippie long hair went, no way, man. And we started breaking up and you can hear it on the recording. <laughs> uh. But that music is transportive, you know, for those of us that were around, you know. That uh, beat is pretty standard, but Jim's words just. Uh, you know, the. Uh, what, what, how does it go? Cars crawl past all stuff with eyes. Is that it? Streetlights shed their hollow glow. Your well, brain is bruised with numb surprise. Still one place, place to go. Let me oh, see yeah. in your soul kitchen. Yeah. I mean, I just couldn't believe how poetic these words were. And I, I couldn't wait to drum to them. Well, yeah. thank you for the way you drum to it, because I pretty much can do that one. <laughs> it was lovely yeah. two time I struggled yeah. with. Yeah, I'm those of us. Trying to play sort of funk, black, sort of James Brown kind of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, your versatility was remarkable. I just as in, like I say, garage rock drummer growing at the Midwest playing Mitch Ryder and Bob Seeger and all these straight head stuff. And I'd listen to you and wow. I'd, Mark, uh, you're, 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 you're making helium rise in my skull. Next question. <laughs> all right. Sorry. I have I have a question here. Um you know, Silicon Valley's produced a lot of technologies and many of which have really shaped, you know, the recording world, you know, from Dolby to, you know, uh, digital design and autocorrect, Apple computer, garage band, uh, synthesizers. And a lot of that happened, you know, uh, during your day, those developments started emerging in, in the mid sixties and through the seventies, good or bad, right? Is it, how is it, how is it, come across for you as a recording artist and how technologies have made it better, made it worse? Technology is um, an aid, but it's also dangerous. You can over overuse it. So as they invented more tracks, uh, we were, we, we, you know, uh, our first album was on four track and we had to ping pong, which is, taking track one and four and combining them onto track three, which gave us more tracks, but less quality sound. So it was freeing to have more technology, but then, oh, well, 16 track, 32. Well, so then maybe some bands, well, oh, let's put on a banjo. How about an orchestra? It's a trap. You got to watch out. Uh, the song disc dictates, um, the arrangement so not technology watch out there <clears throat> but it's um you know uh it's funny when drum machines were first invented i was insulted but 
then I realized, oh, well, wait a minute. It's, it's a, a great songwriting tool for hip hop artists who have no money. And uh, so, and, but the very first drum machines had a, a button that said something like a human feel. And you push that and it would make the electric uh, track speed up and slow down a little like a, like a human being. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, interesting. <clears throat> and what can I say? You know, I just, um, a few months ago, Chuck D from Public Enemy emailed me and said, man, you got the beats. I got the rhymes. Let's make dope. And uh, <laughs> so I got together with Bruce Botnick, the Doors recording engineer, and we sent Chuck some tracks. And I don't know, you know, I said, okay, quantize it, move it around, cut it up, do whatever you guys do, because they do a lot of that in hip hop. But I'm kind of intrigued by, I don't know what'll come of this, but <clears throat> okay, here's a, another thing. I have a, I have a single that I have coming out in a month or so. Uh, and I was just jamming in my living room on all of my percussion with a friend and he hit play on his little cell phone. And, you know, the quality of cell phone cameras and uh, audio is so good. I couldn't believe it. And, and I sent it to Robbie and he overdubbed some reggae guitar and, Wow, technology, pretty cool. Hey, you know, a, a car just pulled up behind. Are you hearing a humming or are you okay? We're good on our end, John. Okay. What, what? So in your mind, John, what are the best, what's the best thing technology has brought to, to music, recorded music today? And what's the least good thing it's brought to music today in your mind? One thing, I, I, I there's been... A, many inventions along the way so i don't know what would be best when we were recording uh, uh strange days our second album the uh, moog synthesizer had just been invented and so uh they had this giant thing in the studio and we ran jim's vocals on strange days through there and it, it was fun Talk to us about the Seekers. You know, uh, you know that book is out, doing well, presumably. Uh, and, and do you have another book coming out? What can we expect to, to see more from you? <clears throat> the Seekers Part Two would be a natural. Uh, the Seekers being my tip of the hat to musicians who fed me. Um, but I did put it out during the pandemic, so uh, it's you know it's doing okay. I mean, you know, I used to go out and uh, do a performance or talk and and, uh, and people wanted to buy hundreds of books, you know. Well, I haven't been out there because we're all afraid of uh, COVID. Although now I, I'm venturing, I, I, you know, I'm starting to feel like we're getting past this. Knock on wood. <laughs> Next year, it'll be really great. Or we'll all be dead, whatever. Well, you mentioned the guys from the airplane, John. Yorma um, Karkonen is a South Bay guy up, oh. up here, as is, as is Kantner. Paul Kantner went to San Jose State. Yorma went to Santa Clara U. And they, you know, woodshedded in the coffee houses down here. 
really um, interesting guys. I've talked to both of them. Do you have any observations about anybody in their band that might make a chapter in the Seekers? I think I'd love to read that if you did. Uh, well, the Seekers is done, but that would be part two. Um, no, I love those guys, Kantner and uh, Yorman, Jack, great bass player, Jack Cassidy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I I uh, just said the other day to our manager, you know, I want hot tuna. I need to catch hot tuna and have a sandwich. You know, because <laughs> uh, they're good players and uh, good people. Is yeah, actually Norma's a good guy. Actually, Jack, who said. Uh, we're playing with them and somebody else, I don't know, the blues band at the Fillmore. You know, Bill Graham's brilliance was to book, I don't know, Miles Davis, the blues band, and the Jefferson Airplane all together in the same bill on one night. And people uh, loved it, maybe because they're loaded, but who, who cares? It, it was more accepting there wasn't as rigid the boundaries musical boundaries so we're on a break and jack says to me and robbie krieger doors guitar player he said you know there's two more acts you got an hour and a half you need to drive over to the avalon right now and see big brother and i'm like big brother what is it a nazi group what what we need to do this you got it okay so we hop in the car and drive over there and we walk in and Janice is singing down on me. Oh my God. I knew she was going to be giant. And, you know, so thank you, Jack. You know, mm. did you have any interaction with Janice? I recall when we met in 08, you had mentioned that you ended up at her green room or. Yeah. In the Seekers, I have a chapter on her. Okay. And uh, I went backstage after she finished that set and she handed me a, a giant uh, gallon jug of Red Mountain wine. Remember that stuff? Oh, yeah. Ugh, gut rot. I took a slug being polite and told her that, you know, wow, looking forward to see where you go. And then the next interaction was at Woodstock, and she then had a monkey on her back, a heroin, and she was not so friendly, but, um, you know, extremely gifted and uh, uh, kind of a sad, tragic, uh, you know, she could make love to, as she said, 20,000 people on stage, and she'd go to her room, and she was alone. Yeah. And uh, uh, Jim had a, I, where did I write this? I've written so many. Somewhere I wrote that Jim told us about this dream he had that we're playing a gig, we finish, and he goes back to the hotel. This is the dream. He's walking down the hallway and he hears a bunch of people talking and they're in his room, you know, and he checks the key. What's the right room? What the hell's going on in here? And he opens the door and he goes in and everybody looks at him like, who the hell are you? And that was the dream. <laughs> kind of prophetic of, uh, you know, this odd thing about being, get, getting mass adulation and then, and then uh, you know, being alone or, or being with people who are uh, looking at you like you're different or whatever. 
this this is a wild stat, uh, John. But you know, Skip Spence is a really uh, interesting figure to me. He's a he's from here in the South Bay, and you know, he was he was a drummer on the first Jefferson Airplane album, and then he leaves and forms Moby Grape with um, those guys. Um, who had the uh, Moby Grape had the ludicrous idea, and they were pretty good of releasing five singles simultaneously. Oh, it, it is really impossible to get one single launched. So that was <laughs> that, crazy. Let, let's just sabotage ourselves. Go for it, guys. <laughs> no, no, I, I just wondered if there's any chance you ran into Skip Spence because no, he's no. Such a, so okay. he. That Spencer Dryden took over after him, right? Right. Who right. was a real sweet guy. A little, yeah. uh, how should I say this? Thin. He did, he, uh, it seemed like the, the whole thing was wearing him out. He passed, right? Yes. And I don't think it was drugs so much. I don't know. But, but just the lifestyle and, Yeah. How about Grace Slick? Everybody seems to have a story Great. about her. Fabulous, smart, interesting, really. And Marty loved him. Great songwriter. Damn, I think he had a brain tumor or some crap, right? Yeah. Uh, I know. Yeah. So, so John, are we going to hear you? Are you going to be touring? Are we going to be able to hear you up here in Northern California sometime soon? Well, I mean... Uh, uh, partially the reason I did this interview is because I was intrigued by your idea of uh, screening, I don't know what, some Doors movie or something or other, and have me doing a Q&A or whatever and, and sell my books. Yes. Uh, um, you know, I'm just, uh, so far I haven't done any indoor things. I, you know, <laughs> not even indoor dining, you know? I'm um, 78 in a few months. I'm super careful because I don't. I, well, Robbie Krieger got COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, he's playing the whiskey for fun. There's a small venue, but it's where we started and it's very iconic. And he asked me if I want to sit in. I said, Robbie, there's there, there's no windows. There's no ventilation. Everybody's crammed in there. I'm, I'm going to pass. So when I feel better about this and when you get your, your thing together about showcasing, you know, sort of high-end movie theater with, the, right? Yeah, it's called Prune Yard Cinemas here in Campbell. Great. Uh, keep me in the loop. I'm interested. So let's, let's do this. We'll just put this on a wish list. Uh, tying it into the doors, tying it into jazz, which is significant. Maybe... Uh, a year from now, the jazz festival comes around every August. Maybe we could do something special. God willing, COVID is behind yeah. us. So yeah, we'll keep that door open. I'll I'll be in touch with Max Michaels on your team and we'll keep that rolling. M much respect for your jazz festival. Wow. It's as cutting edge as anywhere. Uh when we publish this podcast, I'm gonna uh, I'm sure it exists. I just haven't seen it in a while, is to show tribal jazz. Um, and I'm hoping there's video somewhere on YouTube of you guys coming into the park. As you, as you recall, you marched up the center of oh. our plaza to Cesar Chavez to assume yeah. the stage. That was one of the best entrances in history. Yeah. 
Well, I had I had two African drummers and a percussionist and me. And so we got this idea to sort of do a second line up to the stage and uh, really fun. And maybe, you know, if it if I do it, if it all happens next August, um, you know, I have a chapter on Elvin Jones in The Seekers, Coltrane's drummer, who I'm very passionate about, who really helped me. And uh, I certainly would love to talk about that. It's really insightful for those of us, like, you know, we said earlier, you know, I was a guy that dug music, was in a garage band right after the Beatles, you know, that whole thing. And, and, and how, you know, the roots of what we were doing really found its roots in jazz. And a lot of that I learned from studying music and reading some of what you read, especially that essay that you wrote in the uh, LA Times in uh, June of 2008. And, um, whoa. <laughs> what was that about? Well, you talked a lot about how you you would cut school, find ways to sneak into jazz clubs. You know how the, the great passion that it was. Yeah. And how some of these musicians down there you, you, took you under their wing, and uh, it's a fascinating read, actually. Oh, okay. To be the chapter, yeah, the chapter on Elvin was really terrific. Uh, oh, can I ask you, do you play the drum? You play the drums every day, John. You mean, you mean uh, you can't, can you see? Yeah. <laughs> you mean that stuff back there? Yeah. yeah the time. No, uh, I, I'm looking for music in between sentences a lot now. Um, but uh, uh, I'm going to be jamming tomorrow with this percussionist friend of mine. I, you know, not every day, every few days. The, as I said to, as I said to Ringo, when I first met him, Hey, how are your paradiddles? <laughs> and he said, well, still working on a mate. Buddy Holly's drummer just passed. Oh. I was reading the old bit, and they were saying that the unique drum beat he did on Peggy Sue was paradiddles. I thought, mm. really? I mean, I know it's that tom-tom thing. Yeah, yeah. I got to listen to that again to see if it's mm. left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right. I mean, you know, that's... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in the yeah. Midwest, in the Midwest, we were more into flams than paradiddles. <laughs> oh, I love flams, man! I, I, fabulous flam, I like it. Yeah, John, this has been great. Really have. Yeah, we're all drummers. This is good. A little more in the Seekers. Um, yeah. To to uh, to compete with the dumb drummer jokes, you know, like if you want to stay, see if the stage is level, look look out of which side of our mouth we're drooling. Um, I write about how the, the drum was the first instrument and, and your mother's heartbeat in the womb was the first drum you ever heard. Right. So, uh, and you've got your own little heartbeat. So you already got Elvin Jones polyrhythms going on. And if if it's a duet or a big orchestra, whatever, you try and play as one, as tight as possible. That's because you want to get back to that metronomic womb groove. That's what makes us all, it's homeland security, you know, it makes you uh, dance or calms you down or whatever. Good, good time, as you guys know. Yeah. yeah. Thelonious Monk, uh, 
had a list of 10 things for young musicians, uh, 10 tips. And the first one was a musician has to have a good sense of time, especially if you're not the drummer. Oh my God, that is brilliant. In other words, if you're a sax player and you got a lot of chops, but you don't have that inner metronomic pulse that was started when the song began, you know, if it was a ballad, it'd be slow. If it was salsa, it's fast. You, you have to, I mean, good sense of time is everything or, or whatever you're doing ain't going to mean S-H-I-T. Well, I mean, as you recall, I mean, when you, when you were performing live, I mean, I'm putting myself into some rare company, but there are times when you're on stage, the drummer and the bass player are, are in a pocket and and you feel it and the dance and the, you know, people that are dancing or enjoying it or feeling it and that's that's i mean i've had a few of those moments and they're pretty special um yeah and sometimes you see player, the other guys in the band trying to follow you the bass player and the drummer are, are the brothers in the basement cooking up the groove they're the foundation yeah so that's why it would be nice to end on a on a tip of the hat to Ray. I mean, to split his brain into two musicians and his left hand is the bass player. Uh, wow. So him and I were, were, were the rhythm section. And granted, when he would solo uh, with his right hand on organ, he'd get excited. And sometimes the left hand would speed up and I'd have to go, oh, come on back. It wasn't a separate mind bass player holding down the pocket. But um, I just can't believe that the two of us <laughs> somehow got away with no bass player. John, I, I in my real life, I was a, a sports writer, sports columnist for a number of years, and the coaches had a saying, this guy doesn't know what he doesn't know. And it's like you guys didn't know that no. you couldn't do that, right? So you did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's Although... Uh, you know, when we auditioned bass players, we found out we sounded like a, a white blues band, like the Rolling Stones or something. And we thought this keyboard bass would make us different. And then we're at the Fillmore or Avalon and Owsley, the chemist who invented LSD, comes backstage and says, you guys, you know, you, you got a hole in your sound. You need a bass player. He leaves and I turn to Ray and I say, hmm, we're making the acid king nervous. I think we're on to something here. <laughs> oh, my God. All uh, right. I've, I'm spent. It really fun. Thank you, you guys. It's all great, John. I really appreciate it. Yeah, good time. We will be in touch and uh, I want to know about that single coming out with the hip hop artist. Yeah, uh, just check my socials. Uh, so uh, to be continued, huh? maybe next August, hopefully. Yes, sir. I'll be in touch with Matt.